This is a Rooster Teeth production. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Annual Pass. This is the podcast where we talk about theme parks and experiences and attractions and all the cool things in the world of amusement. I am your host, Jack Patillo, and of course, I'm always joined by my lovely and talented and beautiful co-host, Mr. Jeff Ramsey. Hi, Jeffrey. Uh, hi, Jack, and I'd just like to say thanks, man. I was feeling beautiful today, and you confirmed it. I, I appreciate uh, that. We're still recording separately from each other, but I can tell you're having a beautiful day. <laughs> As in, you are beautiful. Maybe the day itself isn't beautiful, but you you certainly are. Uh, you're, thanks, buddy. You're the best. <laughs> I, You know what? I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say you're looking beautiful yourself today. Oh, man. I am exhausted today, man. I am I'm training. I think I've talked about it, but I'm training for the Disney Marathon. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm on a training schedule where uh, you run three days a week and you do like two 30 to 40 minute runs a week. And then you do one long run that you're basically building endurance and momentum and stamina. This past weekend, I did seven miles. Mm -hmm. So we have we have a town lake, which is, is downtown Austin. So I ran seven miles around town lake at noon on Sunday. So at the hottest part of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I made a mistake. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was not the best, but I'm, I'm just now kind of like feeling less garbage from it. And today's my next day. I have to go run again. So, uh, so that works out well. You know, the cool thing about that, too, it's like you're running around an entire cool refreshing lake that you could jump in at any point yep. except it's full of dog killing algae right now so you shouldn't <laughs> yeah. get in it and people on paddle boards as yeah. well so you gotta watch out for them get hit with a paddle <laughs> they're just as deadly but jeff today we have a very very special episode so you know typically we do an episode where i'll talk about it like an attraction and then i go into the history of it yeah. and i do a walkthrough of it so today we're trying something new um through twitter i managed to find this gentleman named jim shull who was an imagineer for 30 33 years at Disney and he posts amazing stuff on on Twitter and I kind of literally just cold messaged him on Twitter saying like hey I do this podcast would you be interested in coming on and after he kind of looked over some of my stuff and I wrote him back he's like yeah sure I'll come on so I've convinced this gentleman to come on to talk about things and he has some amazing stories that I hope we can get into I think he worked on uh the the rock and roller coaster like he may have actually been like the director of rock and roller coaster okay which is pretty good because we've talked about that and so uh yeah I'm excited to have him on it, it should be different maybe this will open up a whole new avenue of episodes we can do. So you slid into his DMs and now we all benefit. <laughs> Thank you for that. And by the way, you showed me his Twitter account and it's yeah. like I went down a rabbit hole. It is a like a Dude. absolute treasure trove of interesting behind the scenes, unique historical photos. And I don't, you know, I'm 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 developing my interest in theme parks through you mm -hmm. and through this podcast. I don't have the historical weight of a lifetime of fandom behind me, but I'm I must for a guy like you, it must be Shangri-La. It's so awesome because, you know, you see so many kind of like watered down versions of history. Like Disney will release like, oh, here's behind the scenes of an attraction. But everything is very clearly staged and made to look a certain way. But it's like his stuff is literally him just snapping photos when he was working. Like he worked at Disneyland Paris. And it's just like the amazing, amazing, cool looks at stuff that, you know, you've seen a billion times if you've gone to the parks, but you've never seen it like this. So, yeah, yeah. anyway, I'm very, very excited to get him in and, uh, and talk to him today. So uh, do you have anything you want to talk to us about before we get into it? No, I just want to get to the interview, dude. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Well, let, let's go ahead and let's let's go and talk with Mr. Jim Shull now. OK, Jim, welcome to Annual Pass. Well, thank you very much. 
to have me in uh, for your little sore way to talk about <laughs> theme parks. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So I actually I found Jim on Twitter uh, because I, I you know, I Jeff, you know, I love talking about theme parks and stuff. And Jim is at, at Jim Shull, S-H-U-L-L on Twitter. And you post some of the most amazing images I've ever seen just behind the scenes of classic theme park stuff, new stuff and stuff I never knew about. And people were just sending me these amazing photos. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And then I started following you and started looking at some of the stuff you've done. And you were an Imagineer for 33 years, right? Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, I would just stop by saying that I was always a fan of Disney before I became an Imagineer. And during the 33 years that I was there, I just like all collectors, I take photographs, I collect (laughs) brochures, all theme theme parks found their way into my personal collection. So I love sharing stories and images and even videos on my Twitter feed. Oh, man, you you and I, we share a love. I've uh, Jeff has been hearing my love of theme park (laughs) maps for the past few weeks now. I've gone a little crazy on eBay picking up theme park maps from all over. So hopefully you and I will never get into a bidding war over anything sp- special, I hope. I well, you we'll we'll talk offline on that one. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. So Let's just start at the beginning. So how did you get your start at WDI as an Imagineer? Did you jump right in? Did you come from an engineering background? How do you, how does someone land as an Imagineer at Disney? Everyone's story on how to become an Imagineer is going to be different. Mm-hmm. But my story was that I was always a fan of Disney, all things Disney. I live in California and my parents, I got them to take me down there once a year to Anaheim, California. And that was my special place. And I would, just like yourself, I'd buy the fun map, get the brochure, come back, put them on the wall of my bedroom and study it. And so when the opportunity decades later came in the form of a phone call from a colleague who was working at WDI at the time, he called me and said, hey, would you be interested in having lunch and having a talk? And so one thing led to another. And after a couple of months, I found myself sitting there in Glendale behind a desk as an Imagineer working in creative. Wow, that's wild. So what were you doing before Disney? I mean, was that your, I'm assuming that wasn't your first major engineering job, right? No, no. And and one thing I'll make is a note is the, the word that Walt Disney coined was imaginary. Mm-hmm. And I'm more on the imagining side than the engineering side. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which means basically that imaginary works so well because it's a collection of different disciplines, different people who have different skills and gifts. Like you may have an engineer, you may have somebody in creative, but you also may have a line designer, somebody who deals with plants, who does theatrical rigging, civil engineering, all of the, anything you could possibly imagine, you'll find some specialist at WDI who does that job. So I'm more on the creative side. And to answer your question, where did I come from? Well, I came from animation actually, because I worked in animation for many, many years in storyboarding and pre-production design on feature length motion pictures and for television animation. Some of them that you might've seen would be like He-Man, GoBots, Transformers. I did all of those (laughs) and I did them for many years. Basically our entire childhood. (laughs) Yeah, so it sounds like. Yeah, basically, basically. And my son who's now 33 used to torture me every Christmas because all of that animation was released into DVDs and my name is on them. So every Christmas, our family traditions, he'd give me one of these shows in a DVD form. 
That's fantastic. Wow. So that is cool. That is something I guess a lot of people don't think about. Typically, you hear Imagineer, you just assume it's someone building an attraction, but you don't think about the the sheer number of, of minds of, of creative people that go into making these things. That's really cool. And all the different distinct disciplines too, right? Yeah, yeah. And I do appreciate that you're all in the same group. It's not like, oh, we have our plant guy. Oh, we have our track guy. It's like, no, you're all Imagineers. And that that's, that's really neat. Like, what's it like working with other members of the Imagineering team on an attraction? Like, do you have to, I mean, is it, is it like one big brain trust? Is it, is it, is it democratic? Is it one person who says like, this is my ride. I'm going to do everything. Uh, it's controlled anarchy, <laughs> uh, but it really depends upon the project. The projects at Disney usually take between three to seven years to realize. Wow. And by that, I mean that it's the time that someone says, Hey, I have an idea. And using white paper and pen, they sketch it out and it starts to then get circulated over around a very small group of people. And so that small group would be key disciplines. You would have a scheduler to tell you, could you build it? And how long would it take? A budgeter to give you an estimate of how much you're going to spend. An engineer to tell you, is it even feasible? And so that little group then comes together, develops the project, and then starts to circulate it to management. Most projects don't ever get traction for a variety of reasons. I like to say that every 10 ideas I'd pitch, one would get built. But the one that gets built, then once they approve it, starts to build a team. And by the time you get to the construction site, what started as a little group of you know eight to 10 people who'd fit in one room suddenly turn into an army of eight to 10,000 people, wow. all of whom are building and doing construction and food services, crafts, irrigation, plants. Again, name a discipline you'd find them involved at Imaginary. So you said, Jim, the average ride takes, or attraction takes three to seven years from start to completion. How do you maintain your enthusiasm and creative drive for that length of time? Like, Because I know guys like Jack and I, we create content and we found the internet because we have no patience, right? I didn't want to make a movie and spend a year of my life before anyone was able to see it. I wanted to have, you know, talk into a microphone and release it four hours later. So how do you how do you manage to just keep that drive going for a project as long as seven years? Well, there are phases to every project. And so we have the first phase, which is blue sky. And that's a very distinct phase when you're trying to invent the idea and conceive of it. Think about, well, maybe when you're doing a podcast series, you think, oh, this is going to be the greatest thing ever if I do a podcast series about X. Mm-hmm. Well, now you start to do the next phase, which is you develop the podcast series, or in my case, you develop the ride, show, or attraction. And I get enthused about that because it's very different than the blue sky phase that I just went through. The next phase is going to be construction. And that, again, is a very different phase. Mm. And in some ways, it's the easiest one because every day I would leave the trailer, whether I was located in Hong Kong or Shanghai or Paris or Orlando, and I'd go outside and I'd see something new twice a day because (laughs) it's construction. So somebody's pouring concrete, someone's raising steel, someone's installing lights or planting a tree or so on. So every one of the phases is very distinct. So everything that I would be involved with would be new daily. So that's how I kept my enthusiasm. That's interesting. So there, the phases almost encapsulate that, you know, that I guess that creative energy from, from phase to phase. That's, that's fascinating. So at what point would you say you like, at what point is an Imagineer done with an experience or an attraction? Is it the day, the first 
cast member previews happen? Is it the day the first, you know, public gets to interact with it? Or what one would you say you would step away from it? You know, I think emotionally you you step away from it when you start the next project mm. because you spend so much of your time, so much of your effort, your your whole energy on that project. You know, you do come to the point where I would realize, oh, today is the day that the guest is going to come. And I always <laughs> felt that the guest is the ultimate person who has the vote because they don't have to come. They don't have to spend money. They don't have to spend their time. They're making a choice to come to the theme park to go on the ride or go on the show. You know, they're making that choice. Therefore, they have the vote. But once they do that, they really own it. They take the ownership of it. Mm. And I start moving on to the next project. And I get enthused about it and my process starts all over again. And so the next shiny object is the thing that I'm most interested in. There's no like hangover from working on a project for a number of years and like, oh, you're kind of like a little groggy before you move on to the next one. You just rip roar and ready to go. You know, people are different. I'm of the mind that I'm always I have very little attention span and I'm always <laughs> enthused about everything. So I'm I'm eager and ready to do the next big project. And I always think regardless of you know, how much money is going to be spent on the next project, it's going to be the best project that I've ever, ever done. So that's where my enthusiasm comes from. Nice, nice. So you were with Disney for about 33 years. So that means that puts you somewhere in the late 80s is when you, you joined as an Imagineer there, right? Yep, that's true. I came in at the, let's see, 1988. I've got one of my service awards here in my <laughs> office where I'm I'm talking to you from. And it's got a, a date on it. Of course, I can't see that one. <laughs> but it's, uh, I think it was around 80. Oh, no, there it is. It's May 9th, 1988. Wow. That was the date I, I joined WDI. And I came in at a time when, you know, we were between projects. The project that I was brought in for was the studio tour, which was the third gate in Disney World, which then was officially named the Disney MGM Studios Theme Park. But all of us who worked on it, we always called it Studio Tour. And you can always find an Imagineer who worked on that project because to this day, they call it, oh, you worked on Studio Tour? So did I. That's interesting. Yeah. It's so, yeah. So 1988, I mean, that's like a prime time for the theme parks, in my opinion, because, yeah, Disney MGM opened in, in 89. To me, the 90s were really when, you know, Walt Disney World in Orlando really kind of exploded into what it is now. Obviously, the parks around, you know, the 80s is when Epcot opened and, but it felt to me like the 90s, that's when, you know, really it started getting huge. And then you had Disneyland Paris or Euro Disney at the time open up around that same time. And it just something about the 90s feels like that's when theme parks kind of stepped up to the next level. Right, Jack, do you think that that might have something to do with the fact that you were of the age to enjoy theme parks during the 90s, though? Yes, but also I think something about our generation, like I think something about like the, you know, the 80s kids growing up in. I don't know what it is about the 90s. Like, J Jim, did you notice anything about that? Like that the 90s were kind of where theme parks became something different than what they were before? Or am I just crazy here? Well, I think part of it is you had a generation of Imagineers who grew up as children, as kids. They Their first experience at a Disneyland was to go to the Magic Kingdom in Florida or to go mm -hmm. to Disneyland in California. And so when they got to be Imagineers, they said, oh, I want to do that. I want to go build something like that. And so there was a lot of enthusiasm and dedication from that generation. And they went ahead and they built. For example, when I joined WDI in 88, we had four theme parks worldwide. That was it. There was Paris was in construction. Studio was in construction. So you had the Magic Kingdom in Epcot in Florida. You had Disneyland in California and Tokyo mm -hmm. Disneyland in Tokyo. And today there are 12 parks worldwide. So that means if in 30 years there were eight parks built, 
not to mention all of the hotels, yeah. infrastructure, yeah. water parks, Disney Town, Festival Disney, all of the things that Disney <laughs> built, plus the cruise ships. I could go on and on, and we don't have that much time. So <laughs> there was an explosion during the 90s, and uh, it was a great time to be there. Yeah, you, you talked about all the different parks. Have opened. I didn't realize yeah, how many parks have opened up since the 90s. Yeah, that's it's wild. And, man, I, it's fascinating to me. I've been fortunate enough to visit Disneyland Paris and the two American parks, and it's my dream to go to Shanghai, to go to Tokyo, to visit all of them at some point. And I think even Disney also kind of raised that bar for other theme parks because now you have like Universal, who's is really gone to the next level, and they've got Epic Universe coming up soon. And it's like it feels to me like everything just keeps like we have these two different theme parks trying to one up each other. And it's as a theme park fan, I'm just excited for the future. Every everything seems amazing right now. Yeah, you and me both. <laughs> There's always good to have a challenge. Yeah, yeah. It causes Disney to raise their game or Universal to raise their game. Yeah. So being challenged is always good. Always good for as a theme park fan. Our lives just get better. <laughs> now, one thing you mentioned, so uh, you were you working on studios. One project you worked on that was one of our first episodes, actually, for Annual Pass, was Rock and Roller Coaster. So how involved were you in the formation of Rock and Roller Coaster? Well, that's an interesting story, yes. I was a creative director for it, and the story behind it actually came shortly after Space Mountain Paris opened, because yeah. management looked at that and said, wow, that's really great. This is our launch coaster. Let's go do one of those in Florida. And there was a team working on it, and they kind of kicked the tires and worked a little bit on it. And various reasons, a lot of things that WDI would start and stop doesn't mean when it stops, doesn't mean it's a bad idea. It just means somebody couldn't crack the code. Mm -hmm. And it was in this case. So I was asked by a very good colleague, good close friend and colleague named Paul at WDI, would I be interested in taking a wag at this? And I said, sure, give me a couple of hours and I'll see what I can come up with. And so I went off with a ride engineer, and this is true story. We took coat hanger wire and bent it into shapes of what the track would be wow. for a rock and roller coaster. You know, you use the tools you have. And so it wasn't using computers. It wasn't using anything other than just literally bent wire and a piece of foam core and wood to build this little model. And we took it to the management and said, we think you could do this. And the estimator looked at it and said, yeah, we think you can afford this. And the scheduler said, yeah, we think you could build this in a time frame. And suddenly we were committed and we built Rock and Roller Coaster, which to this day is still the fastest launch roller coaster at Disney World. That's incredible to think something like, I mean, just the, the walking towards Tower of Terror and looking down to the left and seeing that amazing sculpture of the guitar and that yeah. building there. And like how, how like, I mean, I love that ride. I, I love that roller coaster. And to think it all just spawned off some just coat hanger wire like that's that's wild to me that's absolutely wild. it's disney you guys are supposed to have everything top of the line wow well you know it it, it, it is and it isn't because you know the army of technology comes marching behind that coat hanger but the coat <laughs> hanger wire was the fastest way to do it so i would sit there with dan and myself who he was the engineer and remember mm -hmm. i'm not the engineer i'm the imagineer yeah, I imagine yeah. things. He gave me the reality. So I'd say, well, could the roller coaster do this? And we bend a little bit of wire and he'd say, no, 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 you kill people. You can't do that. That's bad. <laughs> and so I'd bend a little bit more and then he'd say, well, you could do this. Have you thought of this? But And we did, I think, four iterations before we both agreed this is something that would be fun and be possible. And <laughs> that's the two things you want to do. You want to say, oh, this is really cool. And 
this would be something you could actually do. You could actually build this. And that's when we took it to the next level and took it to management. And that's when the army of technology came in. Okay. Okay. Now, so question for you, you launch for those of you who haven't been on rock and roller coaster, it starts flat and it's a launch coaster. So you go zero to like 60, I want to say ish or so. And then immediately you jump into an inversion. You do a full flip. Now, was that inversion from the, was that your first thing you always had that in there? Or when did that come into play? That was actually always in there because I wanted to do, I wanted to do multiple inversions. You know, again, going back to the Paris Space Mountain, they have two inversions. Some would argue Mm. they have three, but I'd argue two and a half at at best. (laughs) Although it's a great ride. Love it. Don't get me wrong. But I wanted to do three full inversions. And so the first thing we wanted to do is when you're launched, we want to take you and have a full three Gs, three times your body weight, thrusting you into the back of your seat. And you're going flat out down Mm. the track. And then suddenly you... In the darkness, you have that moment where something you, your body tells you, oh, there's something really wrong here because I'm now going <laughs> up. And I don't know how far I'm going up because I'm in the dark, remember, until suddenly I rotate around my heart. It's called a heartline center roll. And you rotate around and you don't know where up or down is. You just know you're not in Kansas anymore. You're not flat. <laughs> and once you rotate around to your normal position, then you continue the roll, but in the opposite direction. And so if you look at the maneuver, it looks like a boomerang. Huh, that's awesome. And that's when you dive back to Earth. Wow, I, I will say Rock and Roller Coaster is the only roller coaster my father, who's in his 70s now, will still ride because it's in the dark, because he doesn't see himself <laughs> flipping upside down. Like he'll actually, he'll sit in that one and he feels secure because he got, you know, the the over-the-shoulder protectors. And But uh, but yeah, he loves that one. So. When I did the annual pass episode on Rock and Roller Coaster, I kind of talked a little bit about the history of it. Were you involved in the process of finding the artist to kind of match up with the coaster, or was it always going to be a music type ride, or was that something kind of last minute? Because I believe, but my research said that the Rolling Stones were approached first, and then Kiss, and then ultimately kind of landed with Aerosmith towards the end of the design phase. Was that true, or was I giving false information there? No, your information is is true. There's a All bit right. more to the story than that. Originally, rock and roller coaster. You know that you, you've been there. You know what the building looks like. Mm-hmm. It's very yeah. much kind of an Art Deco streamline. And I took my influence from the old Paramount Studio in Hollywood, which has that Deco streamline look. If you Google Desi Lu Studios or Paramount Studios, you'll see what I mean. Mm-hmm. But before that, it actually started as the A and M Studios, what's now the A and M Record Studios down in Hollywood, which originally was the Chapman Studio, which was very different architecture. It was English Tudor. So that's where I started. And on the top of that building was a billboard. And the billboard had a roller coaster train on the guitar strings. And the guitar strings were as the track. And that was a really good idea. Again, remember, I'm imagining this. So I draw that. (laughs) And suddenly I go, oh, that's good. Well, let's do two billboards and now have the track actually leap between the billboards. Oh, that's a really good idea. Let's get rid of the billboards and just build the giant guitar and strings <laughs> with the with the ride on it. And that's what you see today because that's what we built. We built a giant, you know, Fender Stratocaster red, ruby red guitar out in front of the building with the big steel strings that were built in Salt Lake City and trucked down to Orlando. And it flips upside down over the gateway as you enter into G Force Records. And underneath that is the Cadillac. 
a version of the Cadillac that you're about to ride on when you get into the ride itself. Yeah. And it, it sets the tone immediately for like when you walk in, like, OK, this is different. And then you walk in and, of course, G-Force Records, like the, you know, Disney's always been amazing about theming. You step into like the Tower of Terror. I, I love stepping into the movie ride because like immediately you're in this Chinese theater. But when you step into G-Force Records, you feel like you're in a recording studio. It feels like you're in an actual recording studio. And even the little touches like, you know, we're going into Studio C, but you hear like Studio A and B and you hear bands practicing mm -hmm. in those other rooms. Just those little things. It's like oh, that adds so much flavor to what you're doing and adds the authenticity to it. And even when you step from, you know, when you when you get to see the sort of pre-show and then you step outside, that feeling of being outdoors and in the alley and just kind of like the sort of grime, but not really sort of kind of and then being able to see the launch like so, so much of that is, is so well done. How much thought goes into the lead up to an attraction like that? Because obviously, you know, rock and roller coaster, the, the roller coaster itself is fantastic. But it's so much of that is leading you up, getting you ready, getting you excited to actually sit in that car. Is it like a 50 50 or is it like how, how does that work? How does that process work? Well, I think it's a, there are two things that are somewhat competing. You want to, people to be excited, but you also want them to be reassured. Going back to your seven year old father. You know, he mm. goes on that ride, and I think subconsciously he knows that he's going to be okay. <laughs> I'll give you an example. When I laid out the ride, when you go to Studio C, as you exit it, then you go into that grimy, you know, alleyway. But mm. the purpose of the alleyway is that you get to see two trains launch. And my theory is that if you see those trains launch, you're going to self-select whether or not you're going to ride or not. Because I can <laughs> tell you all day oh, this is a roller coaster, it's high speed, you're going to go upside down. But maybe you didn't listen to me, maybe you're distracted, maybe you, I don't know why, but it's not really registering. But I can tell you, when you see that roller coaster, entire train of 24 people suddenly disappear in front of you, you realize Disney's serious about this and you're going to be <laughs> launched in a coaster. Therefore, you're going to self-select. That's part of the subconscious design that happens. It's story. It's not really story-related, but it sort of is. But the purpose was to make your father feel secure enough to go, oh, I know what I'm going to get into. I'm making a choice. I can do this. I'm going to go ride. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the stuff I would never even think about. But yeah, yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Because I guess when you go to like a Six Flags or somewhere where it's like roller coasters is out, you see them like they're there. But, you know, it's the way you've sort of compacted and sort of hidden away sort of the, the guts of the actual attraction is so different. And that's. So clever. Have you ever designed a ride or been involved in the design of a ride that was too much for you personally? Oh, well, I'm a I'm a roller coaster nerd. No, I I, <laughs> I love roller coasters. I, I've been very fortunate. I've, I've designed a number of them for the company. But before that, I was a big roller coaster fan. And actually, one of my first jobs before Disney was working for Terry Q and uh, you know working on the Colossus roller coaster here in Six Flags Magic Mountain in, in Valencia. And I'll give you an example. We had a press party for that. And uh, I wrote it 12 times and ended up <laughs> with the bruises to prove it because I, I just love, I love roller coasters. You couldn't get me off of them. So no, I, I, you can't show me a bad roller coaster. That's awesome. There's nothing too extreme. It's got to be a really surreal feeling. I, I, I got to figure there's maybe a handful of people on earth who know what it feels like to have that moment, that that moment of inspiration where you're you're working with foam core and bent wire, and then see that through to a fully realized th attraction that 
thousands uh, and eventually millions of people will probably ride. Like, that must be a really surreal feeling to be able to to have that idea and then know that, you know, millions of people are going to be able to enjoy this in a tangible way and get to, like, shepherd it through the entire process, you know? Yeah, it is. I mean, one of the things I always tell people is about, you know, midway through the process, especially once we reach construction, I always have to pinch myself because I can't believe that someone actually gave me the money to yeah. do the job that I imagined. I imagine something's really cool, but until you build it and other people can ride it, you can't prove that. You just make the assumption, I think it's cool. I think you should think it's cool. Please give me a lot of money to prove that it's cool. <laughs> and that's a big part of my job. So similarly, have you ever had to say goodbye to an attraction that you created? Oh, yeah, I have. I did. I, I worked on, um, I, well, actually, I did the pre development work on Ratatouille in Paris. Oh, wow. So I, I did all of that pre-work pre on that and, you know, hand it, hand it off um, at kind of a painful time to me personally, because I was then relocating to Paris to be creative director and field art direct. Uh, Toy Story Playland, which we were building at the time. Mm. Ratatouille is moving to the States now, which is interesting. Usually yeah. it, it feels yeah, like it a lot. Of, I mean, it feels like lately Walt Disney World has been importing their attractions where you used to before they were exporting everything elsewhere. And now we've got, you know, Tron coming in. You've got Ratatouille coming in. And it feels like, oh, we're getting some stuff that has been tested elsewhere. Yeah. And I remember it was not too many years ago. When was it that Soaring opened in Epcot? Yeah, because that's true. That came from DCA. That's right. And initially it was, I think it was Soarin' over California when it was initially at Epcot and they eventually changed it to Soarin'. Man, I, I love that stuff. Now, so before we get too far away from Rock and Roller Coaster, I do want to ask you, so the pre-show for the American version or the Florida version versus the Paris version was very different. And I'm curious as to why that was. Well, it's interesting there. Um, we actually filmed both on the same day. Mm -hmm. We had a two-day shoot. Uh, the Florida one came first, but the Florida one is different because it's a different story. In there, in Florida, we had a story where you were going to the concert with Aerosmith. You know, so they said, well, you're really our biggest fans. And so they tell their agent, hey, go get a limo for all of these people to get there. And that gave the justification, the reason why you had this really big, weird roller coaster train that looked like a Cadillac that eventually you got into and got launched. Right. So there was a complete story. And at the end of the ride, after you've gone through this surreal interpretation of Hollywood, you ended up at the concert itself. And so you ended up backstage. And that's what you see at the unload station. You're seeing the screen as if you're backstage and on stage is a camera showing you Aerosmith is there performing their concert. So the story is complete. You were going to the concert. You invited to be in the concert. You got in their limo. You went to the concert across Hollywood. And now you're at the concert. That was Florida. In Paris, yeah. it's a little bit different because it's a more simplistic. And part of that is language. Okay. You know, people don't have Aerosmith. Had it been a British group, you probably could have explained it a little bit more <laughs> better. It became more basically a generic, known, famous, but still kind of generic American rock and roll group. So it's more about the music than it is about the story. Mm. So when you go into their version of Studio C, it's a lot more truncated where the story is, hey, we're going to play music and go get on this train because this is the best, newest way for you to experience our music. And so now you get in the, in the train, you get launched, and there are no set pieces in the Gravity Building. What you have are concert sets, struts, 
lights, smoke, and a lot of very loud rock and roll Aerosmith music. And that's what you hear there. And at the end, when you go to their load station, you then have experienced the music in a new and profound way, and you exit the ride. So it's not better, not worse, just different. When I lived in Florida, I rode the, you know, the Florida version hundreds of times, probably. I rode the Paris one once, and I think maybe just having that new experience, I just fell in love with the Paris version. Something, something about the lights and the trusses and everything going nuts. I, I just love that. But that's fascinating. That's so cool. I hope you don't love it too much because it's been closed. <laughs> yeah. It's being rebuilt. Yeah, there's an Iron Man ride coming soon, right? So that's that's kind of cool. Yeah, and I worked on that one, too. I got that. You asked before, you know, do I ever give up things? Well, the answer is yes and no. In the case mm -hmm. of Rock and Roller Coaster in Paris, you know, I came away from that thinking I could have done better. And so I had a chance then to return to that same ride as a creative director on the Blue Sky development for the Iron Man coaster, which is currently under construction there in Paris. It's part of their Adventures campus. The Iron Man coaster, it's an entirely original coaster, right? It's not just a reskin of Rock and Roller Coaster, right? You will never know that there was a Rock and Roller Coaster there. Wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah, everything you loved about Rock and Roller Coaster, you'll love again, but it's a completely different story and environment. Awesome. Now, before yeah. we get too far away from Paris, I do have one question about an attraction at Paris that I still am so confused about, and maybe you can lend me a little bit of uh, knowledge on it. There is an Armageddon show at Disney Studios in Paris that seems to be very clearly made for an American park and then was kind of, it, it felt like it was sort of just dropped in to the, the Paris studios there. And I, I mean, obviously that's the only place it exists, but can you give me any backstory on that attraction at all? Well, let's see, I was there, so I can tell you what I did know. Okay. <laughs> I didn't work on it personally. However, when you're working on a new park, you know, you eat together, you you know, see each other in the van going mm -hmm. to and back and forth. So this is what I know about it. It was developed for Paris. Okay. They wanted to do a ride that would talk about the magic of how you make movies. Okay. It focused on the special effects behind movies. And the intent was to do it in a way that's in the round. So rather than most special effects stunt shows, you and I are sitting in a, as the audience. We're sitting in our seats. We're looking at the stage. We see the effects. We see the fire. We see the lasers. We see everything in the show. Almageddon was not that. Mm -hmm. Because now you're in the center of a donut. And the effects occur in the center of the donut. But they also occur overhead and all the way around you. And that's yeah. what made that one unique and different. Plus, it was very small. It was much more intimate. Even though it holds a lot of people, it feels very, very intimate uh, as, a, as a show. And that also was unique. They did talk about it going to California Adventure at one point, but that didn't happen, obviously. It was just interesting because the intro, like the first thing you see is Michael Clark Duncan coming on, talking about the setup of what it was, but it's all overdubbed in French. So I was like, okay, that's interesting that, you know, okay. okay. And so I was, just, I was fascinated by this sort of uh, like this, this strange attraction in the middle of everything. And so... Anyway, Jeff, we will we will get onto that in a future episode. I'm I'm fascinated by that one, so I'll okay. I'll do as much background information as I can on that. And Jim, if you have anyone you want to point me in the direction of, I would love to talk to him about it about the creation of that. But okay, <laughs> so you talk about blue sky ideas, where kind of just the world is your oyster. Where where do you find inspiration for new attractions, or is it something where it's like they're like, hey, we need a Marvel themed roller coaster. Let's talk to Jim, or is it just like they just say we've got a we've got a plot of land. 
what do you think should go there? How does that work? Well, it comes down to casting. And one of the things that Disney does, and I'm sure Universal does it too, because so many people from Disney now work there, is that you have a tendency to fall into your loves. The thing you do is what you do a lot of. For example, I do a lot of roller coasters. I did Casey Jr. in Paris, which is the only powered coaster we Disney ever did. Rock and roller coaster we talked about, the Gadget Go coaster, which we I built in Toontown in California. They went to Tokyo and other places as well. And I did other coasters. So I'm a coaster guy. If they had a coaster problem, they would come to me and say, hey, would you look at this? <laughs> the other thing is I did a lot of Pixar. And I didn't start by doing Pixar. Say, I'm going to do a lot of Pixar now for the next decade. But I did a Pixar project, which was the Crush's Coaster in Paris. It was our spinning coaster. And so then you gain a reputation of, hey, Jim works well with Pixar. Jim should do more with Pixar. We want to do more with Pixar, so let's go get Jim. And so I found myself working on things like Mater's in DCA and Ratatouille. We talked about Toy Story, Cars. I did a lot of things. And that's kind of where you'd go Having said that, if you had a Tomorrowland project or a science project, something like an Epcot project, you probably wouldn't call Jim. Not to okay. say that I couldn't do it, but that's not where my heart is, my passion is. I would do it, but more of a technical exercise. Huh. Whereas if you gave me something that you know is more fantastic, more fantasy, more animation, more thrill, definitely, you know, I would get the phone call on those. Okay, so you you weren't, you weren't exactly pigeonholed, but you certainly had kind of a wheelhouse that people would would go to you for. Yeah, and and also I would I would labor people and going all the way back to rock and roller coaster. I'm the one who said when they had a bit of difficulty, I said, "Hey, I raised my hand, said I've got an idea." You know, and so so that happened. On the other hand, I got a phone call once from Bob Weiss, president of WDI, saying, "Hey, we have this hotel in Shanghai. You know, nobody in creative has ever done hotels." And we never treated the hotel. We, we treated a theme park ride, show or attraction. Would you be interested? And I'm a believer in saying yes to everything. <laughs> okay. And so I said yes to that and ended up spending seven years on the Shanghai Disneyland Resort project, doing the hotel, Toy Story Hotel, and Toy Story Land, and a number of other things over there. So it's a matter of finding out where your comfort zone is and saying yes to it. So is, is that why you ended up on this podcast? Because I asked you and you said yes. And that was <laughs> the, the, the how I got you here. You know, that and you guys are really sincere and enthusiastic. And I'm <laughs> sincere and enthusiastic as well. So it's a good match. Oh, yeah. Jeff can speak volumes of my enthusiasm about roller coasters and, and theme parks in general. He's the, the one who pushed me in the direction of making this podcast in the first place. Well, yeah, we've been working together for like 12 years. And eventually I just had to point him at the podcast and say, talk about it here. <laughs> Good choice. Well, so why did it only take you 12 years? We could have used this 10 years ago. <laughs> oh, man. I, if only. It, it's fascinating. There's so many great podcasts, theme park podcasts out there. I've been listening. I've been listening to Park Stop for a while now. You know, Jim Hill's been around forever. And just, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy to be in this world talking about something that people are so passionate about. And I surround myself with a lot of positivity. And I, that's what I get when I step into theme parks, that when you cross through the turnstiles into a theme park, you're immediately surrounded by this overwhelming sense of excitement and joy. And, and that's the sort of feel I wanted to give across whenever I talk about theme parks. And I'm very genuine when I say I love this stuff. I love I love walking through Epcot. I, I love wandering around, the, you know, the studios. I, I love seeing all this stuff. And 
theme parks have touched my life in many different ways over the course from when I was a child to when I was, you know, in college and work there to now as someone who goes and just drags my friends with me and can take my nephews with me. It's, it's I've gotten to see it on so many different levels. And hopefully that enthusiasm comes across and when I talk. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to someone like you who's been in the, you know, had your hand on some of these attractions and experiences that I personally have loved and I've, I've interacted with in certain ways. And it's for, for me, I mean, when I was working as like uh, when I was there for the college program, riding bicycles backstage at, at, at Hollywood Studios and, you know, riding over back behind Tower of Terror and Rock and Roller Coaster and seeing that long launch tunnel and like. I, I love that stuff. And to know you were the one who with with your coat hangers and, and your foam core, the one designing that, like that's fascinating to me. And thank you so much for everything you've done that I've gotten to experience. Well, I really appreciate that. Hey, I've got a question, though. This is a question I've asked everyone. When you go to a theme park, what is the food you go to go get? What is mm. your must have to eat when you go to a theme park? It doesn't matter what theme park, but let's keep it to a Disney theme park. Mine is Dole Whip. Got to have a Dole Whip. Got to go there. It's hard for me to turn down Casey's. I got to get myself a hot dog anytime I go into Magic Kingdom. But that and funnel cakes are my go-to. That make me hunger for good hot dog right now. (laughs) (laughs) I've never said no to a churro. Something about the churros in California have blown up, too. Like, it's weird. Disneyland is all about churros, where it feels like Orlando is more about, like, ice creams. Yeah, it hasn't caught on yet there. Yeah, but Universal has definitely taken on the churro thing. Like they, it feels like Universal. Like churros are Universal Florida, whereas churros are are Disneyland in California. I don't know why that is, but anyway. Um, so you've been on the back end of this stuff. You've seen this stuff being made. Is it tough for you to to experience a theme park on a sort of guest level? I mean, like you know, I have a degree in film, and so for a long time, I would go see movies and be very just overly critical about the editing or, you know, shot choices and things. Now, as I've gotten away from that and kind of, you know, my career has changed, I can experience a film just on a pure, you know, enjoyment aspect. For you, do you still see kind of like, you know, crowd control and path flows when you walk into a theme park or can you actually just enjoy it as a, you know, as a fan? You know, it's hard for me to divorce myself from the technical and reality of it, but I really try. Mm. You know, it also helps when I go with my family. Because if I go on my own, I'm, I can't help but look at, oh, the trash can is in the wrong position. You know, <laughs> the guest flow is not right. You know, on and on and on. When I go with my family or friends or colleagues, then we're going there to experience it collectively. And you start making memories and suddenly it's, it becomes more magical. It's not yeah. about the technology behind it. It's about the experience and the moment. Yeah, one of my favorite things. So I, on your Twitter account, at uh, Jim Shull on Twitter, you post some amazing photos. And some of my favorite ones personally from the nerd side of things is uh, like there was one at Disneyland Paris where there were some uh, like forklifts out or something. And you're like, oh, that's bad show. And I'm like, oh, that's yeah, it's totally bad show. They should hide that stuff. And and I'm I'm the one with when I'm with my family, I'm like, oh, that door should not be open right there. They should someone needs to close that door. And like, I, I, I would go do it, but I'm not supposed to. And so <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. And so, again, if, if you haven't, please follow Jim on Twitter because his photos are amazing and I love the stuff you do like even you were you were designing you kind of did a hypothetical of like where where the Gringotts area where where the uh, Diagon Alley of the uh, Wizarding World of Harry Potter would exist in California and like just things like that I, I love that you you approach things from kind of a design aspect and kind of like but at the same time how would this physically fit into a space and so I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of your Twitter and all of your your the the classic photos you post it's it's amazing. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I, I, I did 
get into the Gingotts issue because to me, I see it as a problem to be solved. I mm. love problems. And so to me was, you know, somebody had, I think on Twitter had asked, well, could you ever put this there? And I thought for a while, I went, yeah, let me see how you could do that. So I look at things <laughs> as problems to be solved. Not to That's, say they're going to do it, but you yeah, could. Yeah. When you throw out hypotheticals like that, has anyone ever reached out to you? Be like, hey, that you actually got a little bit close. Like, is it, can you, can you come in and talk to us? Yes, they have. Oh. <laughs> no, <laughs> nice. You know, they, they had ears and a tail and sometimes one eye and a green suit, but you know, <laughs> you know, they, they do. But again, if you read the Twitter feed, I'll always caveat things very clearly. Yeah. You know, that this is not done with the approval or input of, you know, either universal or Disney. This is really my own my own thing. And again, it comes back to I love theme parks. I'm a fan. I was a fan before Disney and I'm still a fan now. So I look at things with the enthusiasm of an eight or 12 year old who I never outgrew as far as my enthusiasm for the the industry. That's fantastic. Now, I've got one last question here that I want to open up for our community. We have a lot of younger fans who listen to the podcast and are, are fans of us. And if you were going to give someone advice for someone who might be interested in the world of Imagineering or stepping into that kind of, you know, the building of experiences, what advice would you give those people? I would say find the thing you're really passionate about and get very good at it. Don't underestimate networking. Find other people who are equally passionate. I didn't have social networking because it didn't exist 30 <laughs> years ago. But, you know, use those assets and leverage them to the best of your ability. And again, use my motto, say yes when you have an opportunity because you don't know where that will lead. Excellent. Excellent. Well, well, Jim, thank you so much for joining us today on Annual Pass. This has been a, been a joy, and I have so many more questions. Maybe we'll get you back in the future to talk some more stuff about what you're working on now. Alrighty deal. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, Jim, thank you very much. Have yourself a great day. Again, follow Jim on Twitter, Jim Shell on Twitter, no spaces or anything. And uh, it's go through, go through all of his photos. Cause he, you're posting photos. It seems like daily you post a, just yeah. a trove of incredible, incredible things. And I, I love seeing some of this stuff. Some of the classic Disney MGM studio stuff and all the Paris stuff is fascinating. And yeah, your work is incredible and I'm so happy to have you on. So thank you very much. Well, thank you guys. Thanks for inviting me and have a great day. You too. Absolutely. You too. Such a pleasure to, to get to talk to you. All right. Well, that's my new favorite person. <laughs> Dude, how, how awesome was that? Yeah. I only wish we, I mean, we were, we talk, I don't know what it'll edit down to, but we talked to him for yeah. right about an hour and, uh, I, I actually got, I was so caught up in listening to the conversation I forgot uh, at a few points that I was a part of the interview honestly I was just like <laughs> listening like a fan he's just he's such a interesting and insightful person and uh yeah man that was great so uh, th again thank you very much to Jim Shull at Jim Shull on Twitter go, go check him out we talked briefly after we kind of wrapped up and we're like, dude we got to have you back on because like I got to maybe half the stuff I wanted to talk about and I felt like I totally overran you. I don't, you, you squeaked in a question or two. Why? Well, and, but to that point, I wrote down about 15 questions throughout the interview that I wanted to get around to asking it. I, I knew it wouldn't happen today, but hopefully he will be yeah. uh, gracious enough to, to lend us some more time down the road. Cause yeah, there's, yeah. I feel like we were barely scratching the surface with a guy like Jim. And if you guys like that, please let us know in the comments over on Rooster Teeth because uh, this is something new. We're trying we're trying different things because like I'm this this podcast will expand and evolve in different ways. And hopefully doing Q&A type stuff like this is going to be, uh, you know, a lot of fun to do in the future and interview type stuff. But speaking of Q's and A's, Jeff, we yes, have sir. some questions from some of our community. 
that we can go through. Okay, let's do it. Again, I, I'm pulling these questions from the previous episode of Annual Pass over on Rooster Teeth. So go leave a question or a comment or anything you want in our comment section. I go through them, pull down Q&As, and also we have our question of the week where you can win an autographed theme park map, and we'll get to that in a bit. But here we go. We got some questions. This one from Soulless Beard says, Hey, Jack and Jeff, if you could provide voiceover or narration for any ride, what would it be? That's fun. That's a uh, what, what what attraction would you want to do a voiceover for, Jeff? Uh, oh, man. Uh, uh, you go first, man. I, I, if you're going to do a voiceover for an attraction, you got to go to the very top. You got to go to Spaceship Earth, I think, which is that's that's the big one inside the uh, the ball at Epcot. You know, I think right now it's Julie Andrews. And before her, I think it was Jeremy Irons and then Walter Cronkite. So it's some of the greatest voices of our lifetime have voiced that attraction. So I would say if I could do any of them, that would be the one. And then underneath that, way underneath that, if, if you know, they're not going to let me replace Julie Andrews, living with the land, I would want to do, which is the uh, the guided boat tour of the uh, of the farms at Epcot. That would be my my second one, I think. I would like to put on the outfit and wear the this is a little this is a little more in depth. I would like to then it's just, it's not just VO. There's some video involved in it as well. Okay. I, I would essentially like to replace Brendan Fraser in the mummy ride and see if anyone notices. Ooh, like I could have the wig and makeup and the clothes and stuff. And then uh. we'll just see how long it takes anybody to fit. It's like when you change all the picture frames in a house and see how long it takes your significant <laughs> other to notice that you, you know, put in pictures of silly dogs or whatever. How long yeah. before the world was like, wait a minute, didn't this used, didn't Brendan Fraser used to look more like Brendan Fraser? <laughs> and not like this sort of a skater punk looking dude. Yeah. Where did the tattoos, tattoos come from? Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. I can see you doing that. Yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be fun. All right. Well, uh, here's another question from local ghost, babe. Question. <laughs> do you oh, it's a great name uh, question? Do you guys think you'd ever do some kind of community day event for the pass holders where we all meet up at a theme park somewhere? Local ghost, babe. That's a fantastic question. And the answer is absolutely yes. So, yeah, we're going to call it game days with a Z. <laughs> and uh, we're pretty excited about it. Yeah, we'll do it in Florida. We got red shirts for everyone. We're going to go out to Disneyland. <laughs> Uh, no, so for those of you who are now, you know, maybe have joined Annual Pass a little bit late, we're, we're, you know, almost 20 episodes in at this point, the sort of spawn of this of this whole series, or, you know, b behind the whole idea of I want to talk about theme parks, was the idea that eventually I wanted to turn this whole podcast into sort of a traveling podcast where Jeff and I would be able to tour around, go to different theme parks, explore different states, different countries eventually, and where we actually go to theme parks together, ride rides, and then after we do that, we do a live show in wherever we may be. So if we go to Sandusky, Ohio and go to Cedar Point, we go ride Cedar Point stuff. And then we do a live show the next day where we talk about our experiences in front of a crowd and record that as an episode. So, yes, absolutely. I would love to take this on the road and do live shows and do theme park meetups. 100 percent. We need to make that happen. So it's there coming soon. Hopefully once, you know, everyone gets vaccinated and the world, you know, calms down a little bit. So. DJ Paint has a question. Question, Jack, what's your favorite reference to an old decommissioned ride that you can spot in a Disney theme park? That's a good question, DJ Paint. The first thing I think about that uh, that comes to my head is not a Disney ride, but actually, Jeff, at Revenge of the Mummy, where you're going to be replacing Brendan Fraser, that's the area that they took over from Confrontation, which was the King Kong ride. Mm -hmm. And as you go, if you remember the scene right after, right at the beginning of the ride where it pops up and it's like, join me and have all the treasures you want. Yeah. And it's all these like gold glittery things. On the left side, there is a gold King Kong statue. 
It's like maybe two feet tall, but it's just like a, a completely golden King Kong statue. And that's my favorite reference to a classic attraction. That's pretty cool. I love that. That that one's pretty cool. As far as Disney goes, man, um, the, the stuff we talked last week about Matterhorn, about how they had the Skyway buckets yeah. in the Matterhorn attraction. That's pretty cool. I, I love that kind of stuff. But as far as like, you know, the the things that are gone now, like, I don't know, like I, I I've ridden Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway one time and I didn't see any specific great movie ride references. I'm sure there are some inside of it somewhere because that thing is so dense with stuff to look at that if I could find any GMR references in Mickey and Minnie's, I would that would probably be my favorite because I still have a, a special place in my heart for a great movie ride. So there you go. Good question, though, DJ Paint. And last one here from XX Skyward XX. Uh, what technology would you like to see in attractions in the future? For example, I would be curious to see some VR things in rides. Jeff, do you have any tech you would like to see uh, done in a, uh, an attraction? AR. Ooh, well, you're, we're starting to get that now. You know yeah. that, right? No, I didn't know that. Do I know that? Did you tell me that already? I don't know. <laughs> Is this a trick question? So, I, am I supposed to know the answer? I don't know. At Super Nintendo World, Universal uh, Japan, the uh, Mario Kart attraction actually includes AR goggles where you get to throw turtle shells and stuff at people. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're starting to see stuff like that. And I was going to say VR. I've heard of VR roller coasters where you actually wear like a VR headset on a roller coaster and it makes you feel like you're flying through space. I don't know if maybe I dreamt that or <laughs> if that's actually a thing, but that would be my my thing. If you could wear like some sort of helmet and be able to look around and it's like you're on a track, but like you're on a track in outer space. How cool would that be? Yeah, I'd love to see that. I'm pretty sure I watched like on a plane at one point a few years ago uh, on an international flight. Some like one of those little like vignettes yeah. that was on a news channel on a plane about how there was a I want to say like a like a water park in England that had set up some sort of a VR ride on a slide where you would go down the slide and you had like a VR headset on. It was real simple, but uh, people seem to love it, at least according to the vignette I saw on a plane probably three years ago. Thank you very much for everyone who asked questions for us. I appreciate you. If you go to Rooster Teeth, go to the comments of this episode. If you have a question, just write question and then type it out and then we'll answer it in a future episode, hopefully. So, but not only that, I ask you a question, community. That's right. I throw out a question of the week and whoever, and then I just randomly select someone uh, for who answers it. And I will send you an autographed theme park map autographed by myself and Jeffrey. So uh, the question from the, the last episode, I think two episodes ago, was what is your go to snack at any theme park? Which actually Jim asked us today, which was, seems seems kind of funny. Yeah, he's a Dole Whip guy. Uh, you're a funnel cake and I'm a churro funnel cake slash hot dogs funnel. Yeah, well, everything is slash hot dogs, Jack. <laughs> everything on earth is slash hot dogs. That goes without saying true. So we got some answers here. Dave Moto says my favorite snack to get at a park would be at Disney Hollywood Studios. My girlfriend and I went this past July and got the big Mickey pretzel and delicious dipping cheese. Uh, that taste makes up for the mess the cheese makes. Keep up the amazing work you guys. Now I want a pretzel. Oh, that sounds good, Dave. Mm -hmm. Soul Sarah says my go-to snack is always a Mickey premium bar. One of the Disney theme parks. That's the ice cream bar shaped like a Mickey head with a stick and covered in chocolate. You can't go wrong with it. It's delicious and simple and perfect on a warm, long day and brings me back to being at Disney with my family as a kid. And then they said, but if I was going to pick one that you can get at all parks, I would have to agree with Jack. Funnel cakes are the absolute best. Thank you, Soul Sarah. You nailed it. <laughs> says, I love the podcast. Keep being awesome. Listening to you all the way in New Zealand. Hey, 
Hey, New Zealand. I wonder if Soul Sarah has soulless beard soul. <laughs> or if they're connected in any way. I don't know. There, there's so many souls going on here. Yeah, there are. Unfiltered Inferno says, do drinks count? Because my answer has to be the butterbeer. Every time I go to Universal Orlando, I make a beeline to Hogsmeade to start my day off with a nice cup of butterbeer. If drinks don't count, then I guess I have to go with Jeff's answer of cotton candy. I always have to get mm. cotton candy at every theme park I go to. I can't have the full experience without it. Man, I just went to a, uh, a White Sox game Ooh. when I was in Chicago. This is not theme park related, but That's I mean, I guess I did. I did. I did go to that. Uh, the one we talked about last week, the Ferris wheel. But it was an embarrassment of cotton candy that I ate at the baseball game. Oh, wow. What, what flavor? Red and blue. Okay. Was it blended? or you ate them in separate times? Uh, no, it's like a bag. It's like half red, half blue. Like red in the bottom, okay. blue in the top, or vice versa. Yeah. So it's a, it's a bag. It's not on a stick, though? Uh, this was a bag. Yeah. This is okay. a bag. Okay. Comes in a bag. A little lazier, but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> I take what I can get, man. <laughs> JRH says, my favorite snack has to be a milkshake or malt if they have them. Ever since I worked at a small town amusement park, nothing can taste better on a hot day than a milkshake. Mm. That's sounds good. There's a toothsome like milkshake shop next to Universal Islands of Adventure. I went there for the first time actually when you and I were there um in, God, in, in June mm -hmm. and uh and yeah, oh, they make some really good milkshakes in there. So all right, and we have our winner for this week's uh this week's episode is Trickster. Congratulations, Trickster. They say my favorite theme park food has got to be a good old fashioned hot dog. Reason why is they are generally hard to mess up, so you'll never be disappointed as well. They are easy to continue walking and eat at the same time. Love the podcast, guys. Thank you. Congratulations, Trickster. That is the correct answer. Hot dogs is the correct answer. <laughs> hot dogs slash hot dogs. So there you go. Thank you very much for that. We'll reach out to you through uh, through the site and get a hold of you and mail you off a, uh, an autographed map. So. Now, for the question for this week, I actually couldn't come up with anything special, so I handed it off to Jeff. So, Jeff, what is your question of the week? Who is uh, one person you would love above all others for Jack and I to reach out to to potentially be a guest on Annual Pass to talk about their theme park experience? Uh, it should be someone who is familiar with, uh, who has worked or, or uh, designed or been involved with or been publicly enjoying theme parks in some way. Like, wow. don't pick, uh, I don't know, your grandmother who's never been to a theme park. That would do us no good. But, you know, somebody who makes sense within the theme park fandom. Wow, okay. That's a fantastic question. So feel free to answer that on Rooster Teeth in the comments. And, uh, and yeah, and if, if you happen to know anyone, feel free to reach out. You can email us to annualpass at roosterteeth.com. That would be great. And, of course, don't forget to follow us on social media. We are annual underscore pass on Twitter and on Instagram. Our Twitter's been blowing up lately. Thank you so much. Everyone has been paying attention over there and following. We really, yeah. really do appreciate you guys and love you very much. Twitter's also where you can be like, you can tweet like, hey, Kanye, you're the one we want to come on annual pass. Really want you to ride roller coasters with these guys or whoever. You know, it doesn't have to be Kanye, but I think Kanye is busy ascending from a, a football stadium <laughs> somewhere right now. He's <laughs> too busy to ride any roller coasters with us. BRB ascending. <laughs> so that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Hopefully, you enjoyed this episode a little bit different, but I thought it was really cool. And I, again, as a theme park nerd, I thought this was a lot of fun. And I, I can't wait to have Jim back on again and get to hear Jeff be part of the conversation next time. I'll stop. <laughs> so thank you very very much everyone uh, don't forget we have annual pass shirts and other merchandise in the store store.roosteeth.com as well um when you buy that stuff it kind of shows that people are paying attention and, and you know picking up merchandise and that means the world to me don't forget the annual pass high five you also uh, contractually oblige yourself to by buying the merchandise 
So anytime you see someone wearing that, you have to give them a high five. But it is true. It's an unwritten nonverbal contract. It is. It is. So that's going to do it. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you very much, Jeff, for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. All right. Well, we will see you guys next week. Another episode of Annual Pass. Love you. Bye. Whee! That was me uh, saying goodbye on a roller coaster. Thank you.